The day I lost my virginity, it was not my choice to give it away. As I lay there, devastated, crying, bleeding, my boyfriend comforted me by doing it again. The Me Too movement has exposed an edict of destruction that has been over women since the beginning of time. The enemy has had a consignment to keep women oppressed, belittled, unsure of who they are. Tonight, I want to show that it's time to fight back. This message is not primarily about violence against women. It's not about feminism. It's not about pointing fingers at the past or at men. It is about understanding how God sees us. And it is about understanding our responsibility in this generation to become all that we can be and to live up to some of the hopes and dreams of the little girls and the boys and the young men and women that are watching us and that are hoping that we will walk into the more that has been won for us. Because friends, we live in a world of broken parad paradigms, of distorted dreams, and all of us have got different freedoms. We're a part of different marriages, we're a part of different stories. Some of us have the freedom of not being in marriages. We are a part of different churches, some of us. We're a part of different companies and jobs. And there's different levels of freedom that we get to walk into. And what I want to ask you tonight is whether or not you are pushing into all that has been won for you within your paradigm, within the broken world that you are a part of. Is there more? Like we spoke of with Kerry, is there more that we could walk into that we would have the courage to take hold of? And I want you to listen tonight with one ear open to what I'm saying, but with one ear open to what the Spirit of God is saying to you about your specific gifts, your specific freedoms, the positions that you hold in your life that you might be able to walk into that would open the way for others who can't walk into them until you do. Our story begins in 480 BC. It is the time of the Persian Empire, which is one of the greatest empires of the world. Uh, the king at that time was King Ahasuerus, or sometimes referred to as King Xerxes. And this king sits on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, the, the, the walled capital of, the, of Persia. And this city would be around about in Iran. And he has a feast, a six-month-long feast. And it is absolutely a, just a display of his royal grandeur, the pomp and ceremony and his power and everything that he can display to the armies of the Medes and the Persians so that they can know how strong he is because they are about to go out to battle and to war. And at the end of the six months display of his grandeur, he holds a seven-day feast. And it is the most remarkable beauty that is described, in, where, where this is described in the Bible, in the story of Esther, of their outside. It's an outdoor gardens to the palace. And there are beautiful marble pillars with silver rods and white linen curtains tied back with golden threads and all golden trimming. And the floor is just mosaic of 
marble and quartz and mother of pearl and beautiful gems all mosaics all over the floor, and the drinks are being served in golden goblets and golden uh, different kinds of bowls. That is, everything that has been served is gold. The couches that are around and about the garden are, are gold and silver fabric colors. Everything is lavish and beautiful. And then the Bible says this, the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, <laughs> which is quite a funny thing to mention in the Bible. Why would they mention that there was an edict that you don't have to have a drink if you don't want? And the reason being was that in Persia and media at that time, which was the, the empire, the, the law was so strong, it was inviolable, it was irrefutable, and so there had to be a law that you didn't have to drink so that people could find freedom. The, to this day, if you want to say something is unchangeable, you say it is like the law of the Medes and the Persians. It just cannot be changed. Think back to uh, Daniel in the lion's den when the king made an edict that said if you don't pray to him, you'll be thrown in the lion's den. When he realized that the, he'd made the edict, he'd made the law, but he had been tricked by his advisors. And when he realized that Daniel, his favorite advisor, was actually now needed to be thrown in the lion's den, there was nothing the king could do about it. So that is the kind of age uh, that we're living in. And he's throwing this, this dramatic, beautiful party to show his pomp and his, how, how glorious he is. And at that time, his queen, Queen Vashti, is also throwing a feast for all the ladies um, in, a, in a different venue in the palace. And he decides that he wants to, it's, it's day seven, uh, specifically mentions that he was happy to have quite a lot of wine. And he decides that he wants to display his wine, to display, display his wife to everybody in the garden to see how beautiful he was. Yet, yet another trophy in his life that he could display. And so he sends his eunuchs to go and call her out of her party and to come in her crown, as some historians would say, only in her crown, to come and walk and show everybody how beautiful she was. Queen Vashti was having none of it. You, there was a, an edict that said you didn't have to drink. It's a, that is how strong the law is. She is given a command by the king and she's having none of it. She says, I'm not coming, I refuse to come. And so the king is flabbergasted, he's embarrassed, and he turns to his advisor, he says, what can I do? And they say, you need to pass, pass another law that says she will never come before you ever again, so that all the women know in the whole kingdom that you do not disobey your husband. I tell the story to show that Queen Vashti is tired of being defined by her beauty. She's tired of being, uh, of being owned by her husband, and she stands up for it, but the way she stands up to him and the way she stands up to her situation is unsuccessful and it doesn't work. I understand how she was feeling, that she was feeling like a captive to her beauty, a captive to her gender, a captive to the wills of, of the man in charge. As women, we are co-captives to be a girl is to be a co-captive. We are captives together, and we understand that this is a, a frustrating situation to be in. And so they decide to find another girl. They get rid of Queen Vashti, and they do a search all out of the whole land, and they, 
they go looking for beautiful virgins all over the whole of Susa. And one of the girls that they find, a beautiful young virgin, she was, she was orphaned, uh, her mother and father are no longer there, uh, and her cousin, Mordecai, has taken her in and adopted her, and she is picked up uh, off of her streets, out, out, of, out of her home, and taken in to be prepared amongst many other girls uh, to see where, which girl is going to be queen. Esther is also a captive. She is also in the situation now where she is a captive. But I want to point out to you that as women, we are not the only ones that are captives. Because it says in, the, in Esther chapter 2, verse 5 to 6, it says, Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives who were carried away. Ladies, I understand the feeling of being a captive, but I want to remind us tonight that we are co-captives with each other, but we are also co-captives with the men in our lives, that we are all captives to sin. We are all captives to our own sin and to the sin of others and to the broken paradigms in our world. To be a woman is to be a captive, but she was not the only captive. Mordecai was a captive too. All the Jews who had been carried away were captives too. And we, we start off in this position of understanding that. And as Esther is taken in, something about her wins the favor of the eunuch who is looking after all the girls. And he gives her special treatment. He gives her special beauty treatments. He gives her ladies-in-waiting. He moves her to a special place in the harem where she, is given, uh, where she is given treatment better than some of the other girls. There is something about her in this situation that makes others feel drawn to her. She has a submitted heart. We read that even in this time, as she is in this situation, she continues to obey her cousin who has commanded her not to tell anybody that she's a Jew. And so she continues to keep it a secret that, she, that she's a Jew and to not share this in front, of, in front of the other ladies that she is there in captivity with. And she continues to be obedient. She is submitted to her cousin. In, this, in our captivity, ladies, we also need to understand that as women... We have to be co-submitted, not submitted men over women, women under men, but submitted with men to each other. There is a, a way in, our, in the kingdom of God of mutual submission. We live in an upside-down kingdom, a, a kingdom where the weak are strong, a kingdom where those who are proud will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be lifted up. That is the kind of kingdom that we are a part of. We need to learn as ladies that as we want to take hold of new freedoms, as we want to walk into new things, as we want to fight, we don't want to fight like Vashti, but we want to learn how to fight like Esther in a way that is co-submitted because what happens in Esther's story is that as she submits herself to Mordecai, as she submits herself to the eunuch and wins his favor, she starts to get special information from him. She starts to become promoted, not just on her own, but by the godly men that she has submitted herself to. We are not fighting against, uh, fighting against uh, men. 
We are fighting with men against sin and against mistreatment and against oppression. And that is how we fight our battles here in this church. Our fight for freedom is not independent of godly men and it is not in rebellion to godly authority. That is not the way that we fight. We must remember, friends, that we do not follow the crusaders. We follow a crucified Christ. We follow a Jesus who laid down his life in his greatest victory. That is the way that he won his greatest victory. So if we think that we are going to go out guns blazing like the crusaders and fight that way, I would argue that we would have as much success as Queen Vashti. I believe that there is a new season for women. I believe that there are new freedoms and new privileges. But will we be able to fight with them co-submitted with the men in our midst to be able to walk into them in the same way that Jesus walked into his freedom and his victory? And so it, 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 comes, it comes to be that Esther is given uh, special clues on how to win the king's heart. And she goes into the king and something about her disposition, something about her humility, because all of the girls were beautiful. All of the girls uh, were chosen for their beauty, but something about Esther enabled her to win the king's favor. And we, we read that, Esther, that the king looked on Esther with the greatest of favor. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great feast in honor of Esther, contrary to Vashti where it was the king's feast on one side and Vashti's feast on the other side. No, in this case, the, the feast was for Esther and she was called into the room and it was on her behalf and he granted a remission of taxes to all the people. Everybody was blessed through her success as she was promoted in partnership with the godly men in her lives and in submission to the authority that was over her life. And she, so she was queen instead of Vashti. Through a series of events, there was a man in the king's council who had, was a historical enemy of, uh, of the Israelites, of the Jews. He had uh, been an enemy from, from, for generations, the Amalekites and the Ag King Agag, the Ag Agats, and he was one of the Agats. And he was promoted to the highest, to second in command in the whole of Persia. And in this great honor, he thought very highly of himself, but there was one man who refused to treat him like a god, and that was Mordecai, Esther's cousin. And he would sit outside the palace gates, always a captive to her, his concern for his cousin on the inside. And as Haman would walk in and out of the gates, Mordecai didn't honor him and pay him homage in the same way as the others and in the same way that was required of him. And when asked why he refused to do that, he said it was because he was a, it, he was a Jew and there was only one God that he honored in this way. And so Haman devised a plot he devised a plan to come against the Jews. 
And it was uh, an incredibly, he decided it wasn't just against Mordecai, it wasn't just against his family, but it was against all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Persia at that time. Persia stretched not just around Iran, but all the way deep into Ethiopia, down into Africa, all the way through up into Asia, this massive area. And he decides he is going to destroy the Jews everywhere. And so he goes to the king and he, he sells his plan to the king by explaining that the Jews are, are, um, are, are not good. They won't obey the rules of the king. And so the king agrees that Haman can do as he likes. Haman offers to pay 340 tons of silver for this plan to be passed. And so the king allows it. And he writes, this, he writes an edict that says that they must kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, including women and children, in a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month. And he writes this edict on the 13th day of the first month uh, of, the, of the year there in Persia. And as he, he writes that every single person must be destroyed. There is an edict, as I started off with, over our lives as women. There is an edict that we should be killed, destroyed, annihilated. And I don't have to ask how many of you in the room have experienced the destruction, the annihilation of some of the things in your lives due to this edict. And this is an edict that cannot be undone. It's an edict that cannot be revoked. It is irrefutable edict over the lives of women but it is over the lives of men too. It is over, the, in this case, the Jews, men, women, and children. We are condemned, but we are co-condemned together with our brothers. The king and Haman sit down to drink, and after this edict is passed, and the men are riding out, the couriers are riding out on their horses to go out to the 127 provinces, and they sit down to have a drink. And meanwhile, the whole city, the whole district, the whole, the whole, the, all the provinces of the, of the nations of the world are thrown into utter confusion. And Mordecai learns about this and he's devastated and he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he sits down in the ground and he mourns. And throughout all the districts, as the edict arrives on the horses, there is this mourning and lamenting and weeping in the streets as the people put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn this edict over their lives. And Esther comes to hear that Mordecai is sitting outside the gates, but she doesn't know what the edict is, and she doesn't know what's going on. She is protected to a degree within the palace. And so Esther speaks to one of her eunuchs and says, would you go out and ask, ask my cousin what is the matter? And, so, and, and, and give him these clothes. Tell him to get dressed. Tell him that I, I can look after him. And so he goes out, the eunuch goes out to Mordecai, but Mordecai says I, I re he refuses to get dressed. He refuses to stop mourning. And he's got a copy of the edict that has be been written that all of the Jews are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And he, he sends this edict with the eunuch in, into Esther, into the palace. And Esther receives this, and she doesn't know what she's supposed to do about it. And the eunuch brings a message from her cousin that says, 
you are in a position of privilege. Go in to the king and let him know what is going on. Let him know what Haman has written, what the edict is that has gone out against us. And Esther said, but I, I can't do that. I'm not allowed. You know the law. You know that we are subject to the law of the Medes and the Persians. There's a law that we are not compelled to drink. There's no ways I can just march in to the throne room. In actual fact, there is a law that if I do appear before the king without being summoned, I will be put to death. The only way that I could be freed was, is if he leans his golden scepter towards me and gives me mercy. The law is that I would be put to death if I go in front of him. I can't do it. And so she sends that message back to her cousin. That message that though she's in a position of privilege, though she has a potential freedom, potential access, it's too dangerous. It's too risky. And she's afraid to take hold of it. She hasn't been called into the king for over a month. She's only, only allowed to appear before him if he calls her by name. And she doesn't even know if he still remembers her name. She's feeling insecure and she's unsure of what the king thinks of her. She doubts her own influence. And though she's in a privileged position, she's uncomfortable to take hold of the freedom. She's uncomfortable to walk into it because she doesn't know what, the, what will happen to her if she does that. But Mordecai realizes that it, there's more to it than that. It is not only that Esther doesn't see herself as a leader of the Jews. She hardly sees herself as one of them. If I were to ask you in the room if you've ever said or thought, I'm not a typical girl. If you've ever worn tomboy as a badge of honor, or the fact that you get on better with boys than with girls, if you've ever wanted to disassociate yourself from being a woman or being a girl and felt that that was a better position for you to be in. Growing up, I was a little bit like that. I remember pretending I liked rugby <laughs> for a long time until I started dating a rugby referee and uh, was at every single game, every single weekend. And that, then uh, he called my bluff. Uh, I became an engineer, partly because I didn't want to be associated with typical girl jobs. I became an engineer. I was the only girl that studied my degree. And I was careful to make sure that I wasn't a rose among the thorns, but that I was one of the guys that I was one of the team, you know? And when I went on to, uh, to work, I went into a company that employed only engineers other than the admin staff. And so I had a special access card that gave me access where only the engineers were allowed to go. And so I was the only girl with an access card like that because I was one of the guys. I remember standing around the coffee, the, the coffee station, uh, one tea break, 10 o'clock, everyone leaves their computers and goes and makes themselves a cup of red coffee. Yeah, that's how old I am. And uh, we were standing around, this, standing around, many of us, maybe the whole sort of that side of the office, maybe 15, 20 of us. And one of the a more fatherly, beautiful man was telling a story about his daughter who had had a, a very difficult medical condition. Her lungs had collapsed and she'd gone in for surgery. And he said, the surgery is just the most remarkable science. Um, I, he says, I would explain it to you, but, and he just gave a sideways look at me. I'd explain it to you, but 
there's a girl in the room. I was having absolutely none of that. So I, like loudmouth, claimed my right to belong there, that these were my people. And I said, oh, please, don't worry about, oh, please, don't worry about me. I'm absolutely fine. This is where I belong. I said, oh, if I wasn't an engineer, I would have become a surgeon. Uh, so cool with this. Please tell us your story. And so he told the story of exactly how they got her lungs to expand. And for the first time in my entire life, I fainted. <laughs> At the tea trolley, into the middle of a circle of 15 engineers. I lay there a little bit longer than I was fainted for because I really did not want to open my eyes. And I lay there thinking, oh my God, <laughs> I'm such a girl. I can't believe I let the team down like this. And I just kept my eyes closed and all of these guys were leaning out and he said, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I said, I told her. He felt terrible. I told her and I just kept my eyes closed opened one eye, opened the other eye, and closed them again and thought, I cannot believe that I'm not one of the guys. I cannot believe that I've let myself down so badly. And he says to her, Mordecai says to her, don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you, of all the Jews, will escape. I wish that that was the last time that I had claimed to just be one of the guys, but I'm afraid it's something that followed me for quite a long time until we started Sisterhood four years ago, and I never wanted to start a women's ministry because I never wanted to be in a women's ministry. I never wanted to be sitting listening, and I never wanted to be preaching because I didn't want to be a girl's girl. And I remember going to this book of Esther and reading it and God hitting me like a lightning bolt and saying, do not think that you are separate, that you are not among those to whom an edict for their destruction has gone out. Do not think that you, you do not, if you do not identify with those who are condemned, how will you ever be a part of rescuing those who are condemned. And I remember in that moment, God speaking to me and saying, you are a girl. And as a girl, you are going to speak to other girls and you are going to set them free, yes, for equality. Yes, to be in the room with the men. Yes, to have a seat at the table. Yes, to have a voice. But you are one of them. And too often, we want to disassociate from being a girl, disassociate from being South African, disassociate from being part of the church, sit on the outside and point fingers to the inside and say, that, yes, they. Often God does separate us before joining us back together again, particularly when we're going to play a difficult role, particularly when we're going to lead others. And I want to call you tonight that if you have separated yourself from the condemned, from the, from the girls, that maybe tonight God is calling you to re-identify yourself 
with those who have had an edict of destruction over their lives. And as a girl, as a woman, to walk into your future, to walk into your success, understand your association with the captives and understand that your fates are tied. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says to her, who knows but that you have come to your position for such a time as this as a girl in your privilege with your strengths that you think set you apart, with your personality that you think sets you apart, with your relationships that you think sets you apart, with all of those as a woman for such a time as this. When Esther realizes that this is her fight, she commits her life to the cause. When we realize that this is our fight, will we commit our lives to the cause? And she says this, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She commits her life to the cause. We are co-conscripted into the army, friends, with our brothers. Will we risk with our brothers for the sake of the gospel? We are co-conscripted into the army. We are co-defenders. We are co-risk takers. And I think sometimes women have been happy to sit in the privilege of men and then defer responsibility and sit in the position of women when there's a job to be done that requires the risks that those men who are willing to be conscripted and who are willing to sign up and who are willing to put their lives on the line, then we don't want a part of it. And I wonder if tonight we will take both the privilege and the responsibility of being conscripted to fight for our freedoms, our privileges, and for those who are watching. So on the, the third day after praying and fasting, after asking Mordecai and the Jews of the city to pray and fast with her, Esther gets dressed up. She puts on her royal robes and she goes and stands. Remember, this is even the gardens have got golden couches and marble statues and marble pillars and beautiful linen curtains. And she goes and positions herself in the outer court. And the doors are opened and it's a long room. And at the other end of the room, the king sits on his throne facing the palace doors. And she stands there in the inner court of the king's palace. And she's in front of the king's quarters and the king's sitting there on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance. And when the king sees Queen Esther standing in the court, because of who she is, because of who she's been, because of the humility that she's displayed, because of the submission that she's displayed, because her fight has been a fight of courage as opposed to rebellion, he lowers the scepter. And she's able to come forward, and she's able to touch it, and she's able to present her request before the king. Sometimes, even tonight, before coming up to preach, I, I feel that moment when you're outside the doors, and I'm wondering, God, God, I want to step into the more. I want to step into what you've called me to for the sake of those who are watching. Because I get to get up here and preach but that doesn't mean I have to. I get to, in years gone by, 
because my husband was the pastor, not in my own right, in years gone by. And things are changing here in this community and in the world that we're a part of where I get to do it in my own right. But I started off doing it because I was the pastor's wife. But if I don't take hold of those freedoms, if I don't take hold of those privileges, when, then what of the girl sitting amongst us who's called to preach, who's called to lead, who's called to step out, who's not married to a pastor? And so I stand at the door and I stand there and I think, oh God, are you going to lower the set so am I going to step out of the boat and sink? And you, you step and you take those risks. And always, every time, God lowers his scepter of mercy towards us, of favor towards us, and he says, come forward, my favor is with you. And you feel the presence only after you step into the throne room. You feel the, the support only after you step out of the boat and onto the water. And Esther does that, and the king holds out his scepter to her, and he says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half my kingdom. Her humility and her honoring of the kingdom has left his heart very tender towards her, anxious to please her. In fact, it has moved him to co-submission. It has moved him to be willing to stand alongside her, even up to half his kingdom. James, in the video, one of the guys in the video, James, uh, he was the one who said, the worst thing about girls is sometimes they can be a bit whiny. <laughs> James is an honorary member of sisterhood. He was here at the first sisterhood, sitting in the second row. That's how he, that was the first time he ever entered this church. He came with a girl to sisterhood. And now he's telling us girls that we shouldn't be too whiny. And you know, who whines? Children whine, employees whine, wives and girls sometimes whine. People whine when they feel they have no agency to affect change. When they think that they are unable to do something, they whine. And you know what? Sometimes girls do whine. And I wonder if instead of whining, we could realize that we are co-conscripted and take some responsibility upon our shoulders. Just this week, uh, our dishwasher was broken. The worst, not draining, gross, full of dirt. I decided the wifely duty was I would clean the filter, take out the food, and, but it was still full of gray water, and now I'd wait until Richard came home. And so I waited all day for Richard to come home because that was just disgusting and I didn't want to do anything more. And when he came home, he had had a really tough day. And as I sat there listening to him, and I realized how much responsibility was on his shoulders and how much he was carrying and how imperative it was that I was co-conscripted into the fight with him, that I was going to be the kind of life partner that stood alongside of him, carrying weight in the most difficult moments. I knew that I couldn't whine <laughs> about the dishwasher. And so... I left him in the bedroom, and I went to the dishwasher, and I pulled it out of where it was, and I remembered that I was all very brave to be an engineer back in the day, before we had kids, long time ago, and I, through a series of comedy of errors, fixed the dishwasher, guys. <laughs> and it was disgusting, 
and it was, it, were, it, it, it took a bit of physical labor and it took a little bit of what felt like boys' jobs. But do you know what? Those who whine are those who feel that they have no agency to affect change. And I want to say that that's not the kind of girls we are here at Anthem. We don't have to whine because we get to shoulder responsibility. We get to affect change. We get to be co-conscripted in the army. One of the things that I cut out of the video, um, no offense, I think it might have also been James, <laughs> that said, uh, what does it mean to do something like a girl? And he said it's to do it gracefully. And I cut it out because I'm sick of trying to, women trying to, to, to keep up with men, but having to do it in high heels and with their makeup done in a ladylike way. And I also want to say that here in this community, it is okay to do something like a girl for that to mean to do it excellently, to do it hardcore, to do it amazingly. If you are in this church, you don't have to always fight in high heels and with your hair done. It's okay for you to get sweaty. It's okay for you to get work hard. It's okay for you to put your elbows into gray water. And it's okay to take ownership because that's the kind of girls that we are. And that's the kind of girls that I'm calling you to be. And so Queen Esther decides, as she takes responsibility on her shoulders, to invite her husband and Haman, the man who has passed this edict over her people, to dinner and to a feast. And so she, she does it in a very clever way, in a very strategic way. And Haman thinks he's the bee's knees. And so he gets invited to a feast and uh, she, she, she feasts them and she, she pampers them and she invites them to a second feast. And on the second day, she can literally now have whatever she wants. She's done it the right way. She's shouldered responsibility. She's, she's been humble. She's been submissive, but she hasn't shied away from walking into rooms and sitting at tables and having her voice heard in moments that are new for her and where she wasn't sure if she had influence, but she was going to give it a go, even though it was a risk actually to her life. And she's in that moment and in that place, and the king says to her, Babe, seriously, up to half my kingdom, what do you want? I just want, to, I just want to have you at my side. I just want to rule with you. What is it that you want? And so this is what Queen Esther answered. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request because we've been sold to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. And the king is horrified at what has happened, and he asks her, who has done it? Who has passed this edict? And she points out that it is a second in, in charge, Haman, and Haman is immediately taken care of. He is hung on gallows that he has prepared. His life is taken from him, but still the edict stands. And she's had the king for dinner, and she has, Haman is gone, but the edict is inviolable, and is irrefutable, and it is not going away on the 13th day of the 12th month, every single province knows that they are able to stand up and to destroy man, woman, and child co-condemned. And so she risks it again, and she goes again into the throne room, and again she is given favor, and she says, please, 
may I write a different edict. May I write a different word over my people. May I write a different command over my people to be, to be equipped to fight back. And so she is given the signet ring. She is given the authority and she goes together, together with Mordecai and they write a new edict. And in this edict, they write that they are able to, that the, in the, the edict, it says that the, the Jews everywhere, men, women, and children, specifically mentions that all of the Jews who are co-condemned are able to fight back. They are able to gather to defend their lives legally and to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them and to plunder their goods on the very day that it has been declared that they would be destroyed. Ladies, there is a new edict over you tonight. What you have thrown down when you realize that there was an edict for your destruction. What you have let go, what you have put behind you and thought you could never take hold of again, I want to tell you that those things are available to be picked up. And where you have dressed yourself in sackcloth and mourning, where you have dressed yourself in limitations, where you have dressed yourself in other people's words over you, I want to tell you that you can throw off that sackcloth. You can throw off those limitations. You can throw off those things. It is time to pick up the things that you discarded when you thought that the edict of destruction of your life was going to be the only word over your life. There is a new word for you from tonight. There is new equipment for you from tonight where you have thrown away dreams where you've thrown away authority, where you have let go of gifting, where you have let go of positions and things that you are able to walk into, I want to tell you that tonight there is a new edict that you are able to pick those things up. Pick up what is rightfully yours, the courage, the strength, the authority, the wisdom, the belief in yourself. For each of you, those will look like different things. Those will look like different rooms that you are allowed to walk into, different tables that you are allowed to sit at, different conversations that you are allowed to be a part of. Will you listen out to the voice of God tonight as to what it is that you need to throw off and what it is that you need to pick up to walk into everything that he has for you? And so in the 12th month, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. They gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could stand against them because the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples, to the point where other people were converting and becoming Jews, to the point where other people are saying, I wish I was a girl. Oh, to be a woman in this season. Oh, to be a lady in this season. 
Will we remember that we are those who are able to fight back and able to pick up the things that have been tossed away? Esther begins in the beginning of the story as one who obeys the commands of her husband, obeys the commands of her cousin, as one who is able to, to humble herself and submit herself. And because of the way that she has done it, by the end of the story, she is the one with the signet ring, writing the commands that are the laws of the Medes, of the Persians, that are irrefutable and that cannot be violated and that cannot be cancelled by anyone, including the king himself. The command of Esther confirmed these things and it was recorded in writing in the laws of the Medes and the Persians. There is an interesting uh, statement that happens again and again as the Jews fight back. And in the statement it says, they took no plunder, they took no plunder, they took no plunder. They fought back for everything that was theirs, but they took no plunder that did not belong to them. Would we be those again that don't take what belongs to men, that don't take what belongs to others, but that look around at what belongs to us and pick those things up. This sisterhood was birthed out of Psalm 68, where we read that the Lord gives, the, gives a word of victory and a great company of women are the ones that get to deliver the message that the victory has already been won. Jesus has won a victory for us so that we do not have to plunder others in order to get our spoils. And this was the great, uh, the great news that the company of women delivered. The conquering legions have themselves been conquered. And then the next verse says, the women who were at home divide the spoils. And though the men were also at home, lying among the sheepfolds, hiding, unable to fight the battle, they were also able to collect the spoils. God has already won the battle for us. He has already won the battles for us, and there are spoils available for us. We don't have to plunder anybody else's authority, anybody else's positions, anybody else's words, to be able to walk into everything that God has put in us for tonight. Neither the men nor the women were able to fight against the conquering lesions that Jesus had to come and fight for us. And for that reason, neither men nor women have rights on the spoils, but only those who God calls to pick them up. And in this psalm, it says that God calls the woman to give the news that the spoils is for everybody. It is for the men and the women, us who have rested during this time, who haven't burnt any bras or chained ourselves to any statues. And yet we know that it was not that that won our freedom. It was the word of God slowly working in society, working its truth that one day we will all rule together, that we are co-heirs. And by the end of the story, Esther stands a co-heir with her husband, a co-ruler with her husband, able to stand with her crown, able to stand with his signet, signet ring in her hands. 
And I want to ask you tonight if you will risk coming with me. It's scary to rule together. It's scary to put on the crown and walk into the rooms that we have access to. But if we don't do it, what about those who are outside of the particular palace that you're a part of? Those, what about those who don't get to walk into the particular freedom that you get to walk into? So I don't know if that means for you going for a new job or taking new authority in your home or aiming to be the boss in a particular place or starting to pick up dreams that you have laid down in the past. But we are not here to fight like Vashti. We are here to submit humbly and with humility and with submission, but also with the courage to walk into those particular freedoms and those particular privileges that are in front of us so that those girls who can't get to do it unless we do can follow after us. Those boys and girls who are saying that the worst thing about girls is they have not yet taken hold of all the freedoms that have been won for them. Will we do it, if you have not been willing to do it for your sake, will you do it for the sake of those who are watching and those who can only follow after you? Let's stand this evening. And just take a moment to honor the God, the King, who has won us every privilege and freedom in time. And we know that the fullness of that, the fullness of our freedom is to be outworked into the next age. But right now we want to honor you, God. As I said earlier, what we honor, we get more of. And so we want to honor the freedoms that you have already put in front of us, God. We know the doors that we are standing outside of, that we have to have the courage to step into, trusting that your mercy will be with us as we step through the doors, trusting that you will not leave us to walk on our own, that you will not leave us to flounder as we step into the more that you have for us, God. I pray your blessing over the women in this room, and I pray your blessing over the women of Anthem. In the weeks preparing and coming up to this night, I felt, I felt that I was given a new level of access into a, a room full of weapons and gifts and robes and mantles. And when I asked God what it was for, he told me it was for you. And so right now, if there is something you're trusting for, if there is a weapon you need, if there is a gift that you need, if there is particular clothing that you need, if there is a perfume that you need in order to walk into the room, in order to dress yourself, in order to robe yourself for the access that you think is in front of you, just ask that you would open your hands right now God, by the authority that you have vested in me, that you have given to me for this night, 
for these ladies. I ask for your release right now of the gifts that you have for them, of the clothing that you have for them, of the crowns that you have for them, each one unique. Right now, pouring out from heaven's equipment rooms on these ladies, a pouring out of heaven's equipment rooms on these ladies. God, a breastplate of righteousness over Sade, a breastplate of righteousness that no weapon formed against her will prosper, God. as she walks into the more that you have for her, God. Thank you for bows and arrows. Thank you for specific swords. Thank you for armor. Pray right now that God would, I feel right now that God would like to issue helmets of salvation in the sense of a, a new mind that understands that God has rescued you from your sin and set you apart, that, he that your mind would be protected to understand that you are saved. If, if that is you if, you, if you need, if you've perhaps never made a decision and asked Jesus to save you, would you just wave at me so that I can pray specifically for a release of helmets of salvation over you right now. I won't call you out or say your name. But if you would like to call on Jesus to, to save you right now, thank you. If there's anybody else, I just want to pray an issuing of a helmet of salvation over you. In the name of Jesus, by your blood, from heaven's throne room right now, would you issue a helmet of salvation over these women? That they would know that they are rescued, that they are saved, that they are set apart, that it is no longer their ability to fight, their ability to rescue themselves that matters, their righteousness that matters, but it is yours and that you rewrite their stories, that you tear out the sins and the mistakes and that you throw it away and that you give them a new book today, a new story to be written today, and that you would protect their minds with a helmet of salvation, that it would never be taken off from this day till the day that they see you face to face, that they would know that they belong to you, that you rescue them, and that you set them free. Would you raise your hands higher if you feel that there is a leadership that you've been afraid of, that there's, there's, there is more in the authority leadership space, uh, not necessarily in the church, in any sphere where you have been afraid to walk through those doors. You've been afraid. You think that you possibly could, but you're not sure if you have the influence. You're not sure if, you, uh, if, you're not sure if your influence is going to carry you into the room. God, 
It's you tonight that I was trusting in to do all the work. It's your presence tonight that we've been trusting in. I'm going to, uh, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm about to do, I'm just going to pray in a language that I don't even understand. It's something that I just feel the, the spirit in me. Uh, we, it's just basically a language that is given from heaven so that he could give, specific, it allows him to uh, pray specific words over each person that are specific to you. Um, and so right now, Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. In your presence right now, just as the last picture on the screen was a picture of crowns, we throw our crowns at your feet, God. In your presence right now, we throw our crowns at your feet because it is when our crowns are at your feet that we have our greatest authority. It's when our crowns are at your feet that we are released to walk into the room. A release of leadership over these ladies who are trusting for more. A release of authority a release of Ephesians for gifts for the church, leaders, pastors, preachers, apostles, evangelists, prophets, a release of leadership in homes, leadership over children. I pray right now for authority over mothers, authority to speak into their children's lives, authority that commands obedience. Pray that right now in these ladies' lives. I pray for authority and leadership in the workspace right now, God. Would you anoint them for the businesses that are still to be started? Would you anoint them for the, the positions that they are currently in? And would you anoint them for the new promotions that you have for them, God? I pray for a release of new mantles over these ladies. And I pray for fire of courage in their hearts. Fire of courage in their hearts. That the burning inside of them would restrict, would, would force them to throw open the doors and step into the room. That the fire in, inside of them would consume them to the point where the fear is, just cannot be heard anymore. Your anointing, your blessing, courage, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.